Bonelli's The Foul Life with Chad Belding is back, strapped and celebrating freedom with a real American hero. Jason St. John right here on the Sig Sour Peace of Mind series. We're still trying to piss excellence every single day. The Sig Sour Peace of Mind series never backs down, never settles, and is always there for you when it counts. I can't be the only one on the tip of the spear. I gotta let them all come along for the ride. (laughs) I love it. It's out of the box, too. I really like it. Sig Sour builds the toughest, most precise rifles, pistols, suppressors, while offering the finest firearms training. Top-tier organization, doesn't accept defeat, always wants to win, always growing, super professional, a lot of pride working here. And now for the Darling Defenders, the podcast masters of mayhem, Chad Belding and Jason St. John with Sig Sauer. Nothing wrong with watching the sunset come up over like a lighthouse over the New Hampshire coast, though, right? We were probably about seven, eight miles out of school. So are you up at corporate right now? Yep, yep, sir. What are you doing up there? Are you strategizing for SHOT Show? Uh, a little bit of that. We, I've got SOCOM up here doing a couple of uh, test events so we can finalize a program and get moving on delivering some guns to them and then just, uh, just a few other small little housekeeping things, you know? How was your holidays? It was awesome, man. Christmas was good. My daughter's birthday is on New Year's Eve, so she turned 13, so we had a big time with her and some of her girlfriends and had a little slumber party and sleepover and a New Year's Eve celebration at the same time. It was awesome. It sounds like my New Year's. It wasn't a birthday, but I had six 14-year-old girls singing Taylor Swift karaoke till 2 in the morning. So Yeah, that's what they were doing, too, singing T-Swift or Tay-Tay, whatever they call her. They're crazy about that woman. They're crazy about her. Everybody is, huh? She's crushing it. Good for her. They say she's done billions on this new tour. A lot of hard work to get there, right? I know. I love it. A lot of hard work. Lots. I have friends that knew her right right when she moved to Nashville way back, you know, when she come out with that song, Tim McGraw. But anyway, um, are you excited for SHOT Show? Is it something that you're uh, looking forward to? Is there there some good anticipation there? Yeah, it's a love-hate thing, right, SHOT Show? When you think about it, I'm sure it's kind of the same way for you in a little ways, right? It's uh, duck season still. Yeah, I, I always say I, I have no idea how the largest shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show goes on right in the middle of duck season. I know. Of course, you know, it affects, affects you and I. Probably don't hit you as hard. I mean, I, I will leave for SHOT Show generally. You know, I would leave right around the 14th or 15th. This year, I'll leave on the 16th, and I won't come back until 27th, 8th, 9th. Why are you getting out there so early? Well, you know, we generally run it. We used to run a – up until this year, we run a range day. So we got to go out there and set up, and we bring in all the gun riders for a day, and then we bring in all of our dealers and customers. like Not like commercial customers, but our military customers, and do an entire range day of letting them shoot all of our things. A lot like Freedom Days. Um, but you know, kind of a little bit more targeted, a lot larger to be frank about it. And then, and then we, you know, then we have to get ready for shot show that takes a day or two and then conduct conduct of shot and then completion of shot, you know? So, but now this year we'll be out there early to run what we call our defense symposium where we'll bring all of our international police and, uh, or LE and then our, our teams together. And then we kind of align our efforts going forward for the whole year. Make sure we understand the new products that are coming out, what we're trying to do. Everyone understands what everyone's working from a program perspective. And then everyone else will go home and then we'll roll shot till uh, Thursday morning. Then you'll leave You'll leave Thursday. So you won't be there the last day on Friday? Nope. But just uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then out Thursday morning. So this year, I think, and then I'm going straight to Arkansas. My wife's going to kill me. Why? You're going straight to Arkansas to end the duck season? You lucky? Is that what you're going for? Yeah, that's what I'm heading for. So you going to see Rob when you're down there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's had he had him stacked up next to your place uh, the other day. Did he send you a picture? 
He's keeping secrets. No, he told me they were there. Send me a picture. Do you have one on your phone? Yeah, he said that that rice field that's right next or that field that's right next to your trees. Yeah. He's keeping secrets, dude. Oh, I'm gonna whip him. <laughs> How talented is Rob Roberts at what he does with guns, Jason? I brought that 20 gauge when we were down at uh Prairie Wings because my Black Eagle 2 was hitting two foot high. Remember I told you that? Yeah. And we figured it out. Oh, dude, you got to wait till I tell you what I'm doing with that gun. It's going to be awesome. So anyways, I just picked up another one from Rob. I did some horse trading with him. And dude, I took that thing out today with that Raptor 2, just smashing, dude. It was Rob's backup. I talked him out of it. And so it's, you know, it's patterns. Ridiculous. That Raptor 2 choke tube is awesome. It's real good. Yeah, here, let me save this. I'll get it to you. Yeah, he's funny, man. He's going to be out at SHOT Show for a couple of days. He's like, we we used to always go to Outback when we were out there. You know, that's Rob Roberts, like right off the strip, Outback. Love it. Outback. You go all the way to Vegas where there's yeah. tons of great – Vegas <laughs> arguably has the best food in America because they, they have so many different – down. <laughs> you can find anything there, and he goes to Outback. <laughs> Every time, dude. That's nuts. Like it's, you know, it's, it's right across from the Mirage, I think. Right, but It's like next door to the Denny's. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Roberts, go, go all the way. Hey, go all, go all the way to Las Vegas for a blooming onion. Yeah, and a, and a grand slam for breakfast the next day. He is talented, though, man. I'm telling you. Oh, geez, yeah. Like we he, we had it figured out. So hey, so anyways, I was like, hey, Rob, you know, can you fix this? And he's like, yeah, it's, it's no problem. We figured it out. And well, you seen Benelli's new guns? They got that. Uh, they kind of have like a I call it a gun metal or like a kind of a light charcoal gray Cerakote, and then they got Optifade yeah. on the furniture. And I was like, dang, you know, I, when you see these guns done, they're always done in greens and browns, you know, like always in a camo. And I'm like, it probably doesn't really matter too much. Right. So I'm having him do my super black Eagle. I'm, ha- I'm going to have the, the metal done in like a, a dark Navy. And then I found a, a blue jean dip. So I'm going to have it dipped in blue jeans. Then I'm going to have him laser engrave it, the Canadian tuxedo. So that's going to be. Are you? Yeah, it's going to be fly as hell, dude. Dude, that, say it again. I want to hear exactly. How's it going to be decorated now? So I'm going to take the metal. So the barrel and the receiver is going to be like a dark navy Cerakote. Right. And then, uh, and I might have him do a little distress to kind of make it wash. We're going to play with it a little bit. But I found some uh, some dip that looks like blue jean material. And then I'm going to have it the furniture dipped in blue jeans. And then I'm going to have it laser engraved. It's going to say, it's going to be called the Canadian Tuxedo. That's going to be my gun. That's going to be freaking slick. Dude, it's going to be badass, dude. Does he, does he think he's going to be able to pull it off? He's Yeah, absolutely. We might do a little bit of like uh, kind of the same ways that he does his distress. So that's kind of navy blue and then kind of maybe some, maybe even like a whitewash underneath, like a little acid wash. We're going to try to distress it to make it look fucking fly. It's going to be cool. I don't know why it sounds so sick, but for like a redneck like me, it sounds so cool, dude. <laughs> I love it. It's out of the box, too. I really like it. It'll be the only one, I'll tell you Yeah, that. until people start copying it. You got to get Rob to do a you know, proprietary deal on that, sign an agreement with him. No more of these can go out. I can't stop dreams, bro. They got to let them fly. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be the only one on the tip of the spear. I got to let them all come along for the ride. <laughs> you got to. You got to be the trailblazer and then let them form a line. I don't know. I like that. It sounds goofy, but I just, man, it hit me one day. I was like, that sound, that'd be just fucking cool, dude. Yeah. And it was just because I looked at that one, at the Benelli on the rack, right? I was like, yeah, gunmetal gray. And they, they look sharp. They look real sharp. Yeah, Benelli's are the best. I freaking love them. Yep. How do you rank Freedom Days? I want to talk about Freedom Days for a second. I joined you in Dallas, and then I know you all went to Florida for one also. Was it a success? I loved what we did there. I mean, talk about a deal of nonstop shooting all day um, as an attendee. I mean, 
I don't know about the time of year. I don't know what's going to, you know, how you schedule those things and then how you pick the areas you do them. But did you guys feel pretty good about it overall? Yeah, we did two this year, right? So we did Florida and we did that, I think, about two weeks, three weeks before we did the one in, in Dallas there. That, Weren't that, wasn't it vice versa? You're right. It was. Sorry, man. Running wide open. You're right. Yeah, Florida was. Yeah, after. I think Florida was after. Guy knows my job better than me. I love it. <laughs> well, you were at both of them. I only went to Dallas. Dude, uh, the Florida one was awesome because they had a sandhill crane there that literally walked up and like hung out by my range all day while we're shooting machine guns. He was like, I don't care. It was like a total Florida <laughs> crane, dude. <laughs> Sitting hanging out by belt. He knew he was safe. Yeah, he's sitting by belt fed machine guns and not even getting phased. Um, but if you come back to the events, right, like Dallas, I thought was like both events were very well attended and they evolved from the, when we did Freedom Days the year before we did them in Phoenix, we did it in Phoenix for three days and we had, I mean, it was like a thousand to 1200 people a day there. And that was too many, right? That was just, you know, like you'd, it was almost like being at the the Six Flags, right? You'd go to the front of the line, then you had to sit in the back of the line, you know, and, and wait 15, 20 people to get a chance to shoot and they evolved now. I think they brought them a little bit more smaller audiences and then they brought them down to a little bit more kind of a premier event, right? So you got a chance to come out there and you could rotate and you could just, you know, some of them stages, you could just sit there and shoot as much as you wanted to shoot until you didn't want to shoot anymore. Yeah. And of course, you know, we limited the machine guns because otherwise nobody would shoot anything else but machine guns, right? What were we shooting as far as the machine gun goes? So you got a chance to shoot the Army XM250, which is the new next gen squad weapon automatic rifles. So it's the replacement of the M249 saw. And then that's chambered in our new 6.8 hybrid, which is a high pressure, high velocity ammo. That's kind of, you know, the army was bold with what they wanted to try to accomplish. And, and because they validated that high pressure ammo, you're, you're in a position now where really the new, the commercial market's going to change, you know, I think in the next seven to 10 years, it's not going to overtake conventional ammunition, but you're going to see 10, 15% of the market share on rifle market share being absorbed by high pressure, high performance ammo, right? So it's, you're like kind of on the cutting edge of being able to get a chance to be exposed to it, shoot it. And what it really is, is a real simple way of looking at it is it's a conventional cartridge. So just think of like 308. I think most people can understand 308. The cartridge itself is basically a 308 round necked down to 68, but it's, you know, it takes a 308 cartridge and enable, enables it to handle more pressure. So you basically get 300 wind short magnum out of a 308 cartridge a 270 short magnum is a very good uh, comparison to, you know, 270 to 7 mil short mag is really a good comparison to what the Army 6.8 rounds doing it. And the advantage is, is you're getting, you know, let's call it light magnum performance out of a, you know, conventional weapon instead of a larger weapon, which would normally take to handle that magnum performance. So when you shoot that gun yourself with your experience with, with those type of weapons, Jason, what kind of grouping can you get? I mean, you were teaching me stability and really anchoring down and getting your feet in the right position and pushing back against the gun. What kind of grouping can you get with that high-pressured ammo with a gun that is shooting with that frequency? Oh, like a machine gun? You know, the machine gun itself is capable of shooting about a four-minute of angle group, which means four inches at 100 meters, single shot, right? Like one shot, and then all of a sudden, you know, like similar to how anyone else would group or zero their rifle. But, you know, once you put you know, automatic fire into it. Obviously the guns moving, the reciprocation of the bolt group, you know, the recoil, the return of that bolt mass moving forward and all of those things combined, it's, you know, it's going to increase your, your beaten zone quite a bit. Um, I, I think our full auto accuracy on that gun in a fixture probably grows about 50%. 
you know, so about six inches at a hundred, you put you or I behind it. And of course there's that human error that comes in there. And, you know, we're not neither, no matter how physically fit we look, you know, we're not a steel fixture, you know? So, so I'd say you're probably, you know, a 10 inch group at a hundred, 12 inch group at a hundred on full auto would be, would be exceptionally well for an average shooter. And that's mostly conjecturous, right? But if you don't do the right thing, you know, if you shoot, if for those that have shot a lot of full auto, you know, full auto can own you realistically, right? It can, oh, yeah. if you, if you don't have the, your body in the a nice aggressive position, you don't have a nice weight forward position that's going to absorb that recoil and you get on your heels, you know, it'd be like trying to be in a wrestling match and you're leaning backwards and a guy trying to take you down. It's not that hard, right? You can just barely push you, you know? So like we were talking when you were shooting, you know, don't put yourself in a position where, you know, you put your weight forward, you really put a lot of shoulder weight and body weight into the bipods, that's going to help absorb that recoil and put you in the right proper position on a machine gun. So you're saying that at 100 yards with the proper form, that gun will pattern at a 12-inch circle with every bullet from that belt in that 12-inch circle at 100 yards? I think that's probably possible. You know, I've never really tried it, to be frank about it, but I think we shoot, you know, six and a half, seven minutes of angle a lot of a fixture so it'll shoot seven inches out of a steel fixture that you know it has it anchored and then you know i figured it wouldn't be anything to say that if it grew 20 percent because of a accomplished shooter behind him on bipods that it shouldn't be able to do that if you put it on a tripod that's about the same as putting it in a fixture and a lot of machine gun firings out of a tripod so you know out of a tripod it probably shoot six seven eight inches at 100 meters every round six seven eight inches just with holding the trigger down not one at a time. Nope. Pin in the trigger. Yes, sir. And how many bullets are on that belt usually? Uh, standard's a hundred round belt. And then, you know, if you're running a two man gun team, the the secondary gunner's responsibility is to keep linking ammo into that, right? So your assistant gunner would continue to link ammo. As that ammo is being chewed up and shot in that gun, he would just add more ammo to it, right? But, you know, we start out with a hundred round belt. It would probably be carried with a 50 round belt. So how would... You'd carry it around with a 50 round belt, but if you have a hundred round belt on there and you pin the trigger, how long does it take to go through that hundred rounds with that new gun? Well, it's 700 rounds a minute, right? So one seventh of a minute, what, what would that be? Not not even 10 seconds. Point something seconds to go through a hundred rounds. God dang. 700 rounds a minute with the trigger pinned. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah. So if you just did simple math on it and say you could hold a 12 inch group at a hundred, when you went to 500, it'd be a 60 inch group, right? So, you know, if you shoot 10 bullets, you're going to have 10 bullets land within a 60 inch area. You know, there, there's other factors in there, but that's quite impressive and why machine guns are so, so crazily, you know, effective, right? So when you say that that gun is the replacement of the saw, what, who, what kind of personnel will be using and utilizing that new gun? Would it be your old position? Yeah, it'd be, it'll be every single um, automatic rifleman in the infantry. So there's two per squad. So if you look at how a squad is broke down, it's broke down into two teams. You got a squad leader and two times four personnel. You have a team leader who's carrying a, a rifle. You have a rifleman who's carrying a rifle. You have a grenadier who's carrying a rifle with a 203 grenade launcher, 40 millimeter grenade. And then you have an automatic rifleman. So in an infantry platoon, you would have six of those machine guns spread across you know, nine times three, 27 personnel. So six of them for 27 soldiers. Yep. So about a 20% of your personnel, right? And out of those six riflemen, are they considered snipers? Oh no. The riflemen that are in the, in the platoon. Yeah. Oh no, 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 no. no they're just regular infantryman guy. Snipers are not in that infantry that you're talking about. They're completely different personnel. Yeah. 100%. They'd be attached, right? So you might, depending on how your organizations broke down, you know, when I, when I first came in the army, we were in the company. 
So each company had, you know, their their sniper resources and they could, you know, utilize them throughout their operation, how they seen within their own company. And then it eventually evolved into a battalion's asset. And so then the battalion, the companies request the battalion asset to be attached to them. Um, when it was in a company aspect and even in the battalion aspect, you'd see a lot of times like in, in a, you know, one sniper per platoon, you know, you might get two snipers per company on a deployment and, and then they're they're put on the objectives, you know, based on commander's intent. So you as a sniper, would you shoot that gun that we're talking about right now, the new machine gun? Would that be utilized by a sniper team? No, no, no. I don't want to get too technical here, but it'd be utilized if you had a security attachment with you. But the sniper team would be usually generally two two individuals. Um, you can do operations with a security team, right? Like, you know, early on the war did some stuff on the Pakistan border and we were probably, I don't know, a dozen hours, 11, 12 hours from any sort of, you know, quick reaction force. So if you got in any trouble, you just have two dudes out there. And those situations, I went out with a two-man mortar team and a two-man security team. So I took four individuals with me with a, you know, an AG and a machine gunner or a light machine gunner. And then, uh, a mortarman and his assistant gunner, and then the sniper team. So really from a small team perspective, it's pretty formidable, formidable, right? If, if you got into trouble, you had kind of everything you needed to kind of hold yourself over and uh, until, you know, the, the cavalry could get there, you know, quote unquote. With six men, six soldiers. Yes, sir. Yep. And you're 12 to 13 hours away by, uh, by truck? Yeah, by truck, right? So like, you know, eight to 12 hours is pretty common in, in certain parts of Afghanistan. Just been, And a lot of it's inaccessible by truck, right? So that's why it takes so long. They might only be 15, 20 miles away setting off what you're overwatching and, you know, and, and, and coming to you. Or, you know, you don't, like in Afghanistan, this day, you know, you didn't have like rotary wing assets. You could just jump on a bird unless you were relatively close, you know, to a, to a major base. Um, you know, and if you had rotary wing in those situations, you could be anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half out, depending on what kind of assets you had for a QRF force. But there was a, plenty of operations that we did that were overwatches of, you know, high traffic areas, overwatching for IED emplacement, overwatching areas for supply routes. And, you know, that, you know, we would sit off and, you know, a platoon of troops might be six, eight, 10, 12 hours away from us, just depending. So. How would you and your six-man team get out there? Like in that situation, you know, a lot of it would be like, I'll just go with one particular situation. And a lot of them are the same as you just do a night patrol. You'd move out in vehicles and then you just get dropped off. And then, you know, you might have to take a, a short overland movement, you know, so you might get dropped off and, you know, work your way, way up to a ridge and then, you know, walk down a couple of clicks, you know. Um, you have other instances where, you, you know, you're in place with a helicopter, but those are usually larger operations where you can get in place on a, on a higher area with, by helicopter. And then you're doing larger clearing operations or doing other things like that. Right. So everyone else is coming in very announced if I, if I can, but on, 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 on overwatches where you don't want to be discovered, it's all small footprint, low impact infill, right. The, the convoy might just stop on a route and you just jump off and they drive away and then you move up into your position. What was the longest you ever laid in one spot when you were on an overlook um, on a mission like that. Can it be a full day? Like how long, how long can you, you know, be prepared to lay there looking for the target or looking for the, I guess targets, the right word or enemy, but how, how long would you stay on one mission like that in the position of a sniper? The longest was 12 days without moving. It's not like laying still, like, you know, you see in the movies, but like, you know, being up in the, the brambles and up in the, you know, up in the mountain and, finding a nice little outcropping or a place where you can observe what you're trying to observe. And yeah, you just, you, you just lay in that little area. You got like 20 square feet that you're moving around in, right. You got the, 
you got your security detail covering your your six o'clock and you know you're rotating your responsibilities you bring you bring you know in those situations like that you can't you can't sit there and observe that long a person can't for one just stay focused that long but you know, it, it's nothing for a recce team to sit up there days and days and days. So you would take turns sleeping throughout the day and the night, and then other people would. You, obviously, you always have somebody watching. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there's it's kind of funny, you know. There's it, like it depends on what size unit you're in. Like in that operation where we had six people on that that twelve day mission, we had six folks on there, and for the most part, you're running. You know, you're running fifty percent security during the day, meaning that you're split up in two teams. The sniper teams work in the observation area and then your security is, you know, working the two main avenues of approach that we're kind of, you know, you'd be concerned about and you would just run 50, 50, right. I might sit on for an hour and observe the target area. And then I'd rotate with my partner. And at the same time, the security guys would rotate. And that's when you just kind of might take a nap, you know, 20, 30 minute nap during the day or sit there and twiddle your thumbs to be frank. You, you, you can't be obviously seen. So how, how strict are your movements? How are you in ghillie suits the entire time? If you have to go take a piss, do you have to like crawl or belly crawl to a position to get out of sight? Like how, how careful do you have to be in that position where there's, you know, there's enemies probably on the lookout for any type of personnel looking out over their, over their missions of what they're trying to perform during the day. I probably didn't get up above my hands and knees for all those days. And nobody, you know, maybe, maybe sit up and lean against your rucksack, you know, like if that makes sense, like just sit on your ass and lean against your rucksack, but I never stood up, but it's not, it's, you know, you can probably get a little, it's, it's, you can get a little too comfortable, but I mean, all your movements are, they're not critically slow, but you're not jumping up and running over here, running over there where you can be noticed, right? It's Were you ever noticed in any of your missions, Jason? Did you ever get shots? Oh, yeah. Did you get f- shots rained down on you that because they saw you when you didn't think they saw you? No, not in any of those sniper missions. No, none. You know, but we, we know we, we, we got discovered on two separate missions um, or what I would say lightly discovered, you know, just people moving through the hills and you don't know if they see or they don't, you know, anything like that. And then it's, you know, in that situation, depending on where you're at, it's, you know, you you go to 100% security, everything's packed up, which everything's packed up the whole time. But, you know, you still have a little bit of shit laying out, spot and scopes or something like that. So, you know, you pack all your stuff up, make sure your satcoms, everything's all buttoned up and you're on 100% security until darkness. And, you know, hopefully you can find a different place to move to, which might mean, you know, at that time you you pick up everything and you, you basically patrol out of there. And, you know, in this situation, I got busted on that 12 day one. Well, I say busted, but someone come within 20 yards of us. And I don't think they saw us, but we weren't really to take that chance. And so then you pick up and you, you know, wait till darkness and you move all the way around and get all the way on the other side of the Valley. And then, you know, you, you get another advantage point so you can watch where you're moving or, or your area responsibility. And then you also backwatch the area where you were to make sure that nobody kind of came up to where you were. And if someone would come up and find you or your area where you were, you'd obviously know you're compromised. You need to get the hell out of there. Right. So then you'd call the QRF and, you know, have them come in and get you. When you say somebody's within 20 yards, it's not just one person, is it? Is it an, an entire platoon up there looking for, or what, what is it a soldier that's on, a, that, that's on lookout up there to see if you're around? No, it just, it can be anything, right? But mostly just civilians. Oh, it's hard to tell sometimes, you know, like rural Afghanistan, especially in the early two thousands, I mean, everybody had an AK on them, you know, like it would be crazy, man. You'd drive through town. You know, you'd be you'd be on patrol, and as long as I mean, the rules were literally were Chad. If if an individual has his AK forty seven slung over his back to the ground, you weren't allowed to engage him because they were non combatant. It wasn't until they kind of 
threatened you. And of course that evolved as, you know, situations evolved, but in the beginning you could be at a checkpoint, you know, doing a vehicle checkpoint and have, you have a car pull up with four dudes and AKs all sitting in their laps and you're like, go about your business. I'm not done on this civilian though. Do what would a civilian be? Is there villages up where you're at? They could be up there. Yeah. Yes. Everything you're overwatching is, you know, going to be main avenues of approach. And and you're up on like, say when you're up on the East side and the, in the big mountains and the big passes, you know, it's, you know, those valleys are just like anywhere else in our country. Like that's where agriculture is and that's where the water runs through and that's where people populate. Right. So like small villages are through there, um, you know, and so in your, in your main travel routes are, you know, foot traffic or, you know, donkey trails, things like that, all that's going through there. And, you know, so you got people that are herding goats and moving goats up through the mountains and, you know, grazing them and things like that, you know, so you know, mostly if you're going to, if you're going to encounter someone up in the hills like that, I mean, every time I've done, it's always just been someone with goats, you know, or if, and you stay off the tops of the ridges, cause that's an easy mode of, of movement. So you might just have some people that are walking down the ridge line or walking down the, rather than being on the main Valley, they're just up walking the ridges. Cause it's just an alternative Avenue of, of, of convenience, really. Applying this to modern day hunting and mountaineering or backcountry, Some people call it when you're on a 12 day mission like that, Jason St. John, do you have the ability to warm water, to put it into your dry food? How do you eat on a 12 day mission when you can barely move? Well, MREs, you know, like that's, but you got to be super conservative. Like, like on that mission, that 12 day mission, I had seven meals. It was supposed to be, it was supposed to be a five day or I had seven meals was going to have one, one and a half a day. Basically at nighttime, we had to make a move down to get water. And, you know, we were on water rationing. We were on food rationing. We were on battery rationing for Camo. You know, like what I mean by that is, you know, like, Hey guys, you know, eat half a meal today. That's all you got. We don't know when we're, we're getting out of here and we were getting some decent Intel. And so I think on that mission, I, I think I gave like two of my meals away and my, my guy was working for me, gave a couple meals away to the younger guys that weren't, weren't too, too hip on not eating, you know? And then, uh, but then you have to do water rationing too. Right. But it's, it's kind of easy if you're, you know, that I think that mission was like July, August. So it's hella hot there. You know, it's 125 degrees during the day, but you're up in the shade, but you're not moving. Right. So you're, you're conserving your energy. You're just laying there and uh, you know, you had to conserve water and then, you know, I think we moved down one time we went on a water resupply and we just put it through filtration, then put iodine tablets in it, you know, and uh, kind of plussed up on our water. But, you know, like really, honestly, I think I'd have been out there a couple more days on that mission if it wouldn't have been for the fact that like headquarters was losing their mind because, you know, we we had to ration our batteries, you know, and, and by rationing batteries, that means, you know, I got to turn my radio off so they can't contact me. And then you just open up comms windows. So like, you know, every hour on the hour, you turn your radio on and you're like, hey, Chad Belding, Jason St. John, over. And they're like, yep, still alive. I'm like, yep. All right. Going radio silent for an hour, you know. So, you know, now they on the other end, they stay on the radio all the time, right? They don't have any power limitations. But I, I think we'd have been out there for another two days if if leadership could have just sustained the nerves they had of not being able to talk to us. Right. So, so yeah. was it mission successful? Did you, did you do it? Yeah, it was great. So, why would you have stayed out there another two days if it was great and the mission was successful? Man, we were we were close to getting a little bit more stuff, you know. But we had we had good intel, we had good hard in, you know intel. Um, like on that mission right there, we were just watching um, for. We were really trying to determine if that was a supply route, and we believed it was a supply route that people were bringing in IED explosives and 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 manufacturing them in that area 
then taking them further down the valley and placing them. So we we just had some local intel that said, hey, this is where stuff's going on. And so we overwatched this village and shit, it was crazy because like when I say it's mission successful, we were watching that. We didn't have nothing for like seven days. You know, we just watched everyone. It was it was, it was kind of a cool thing. Like your your daily TV was just watching regular life happen, right? I mean, I watched a guy on that mission. He started digging a terrace, like terrace farming on the side of a mountain. And I watched him finish it, like just out there. 12 days or 12 hours a day with a, with a, with a pickaxe, picking the dirt, picking the rocks out, building a wall, flattening it out for like five rows of corn by 30 yards. Right. Like it was just, I watched him just level that mountain so he could put five, five rows of corn in, you know, for 30 yards. But like, I think on day seven or eight, we had some interesting folks come along and then believe it or not, we actually watched them give a class on how to set explosives and blow explosives. So the like couple dudes came from Pakistan, got like five dudes together, went down in the creek in like the flat creek bottom and was like, I literally watched him give a class on how to rig explosives and how to blow explosives. But you can't do anything because they don't have their guns and they're not armed at that time. No, no, we could have, we could have shot the shit out of them. Um, but the problem you had with that is, is our QRF was so far away. Right. And so if we would have engaged them in that situation, now we're on, you know, yeah, let's say we, you know, we we get, you know, the the two dudes that are teaching the class and I don't know what, you know, we probably would have got the other guys. We probably would have shot them as well. Say we clean house on all of them, right? Well, now you're, I'm really pretty certain on that. We were like eight hours. There was, we were 12 hours from base and there was a platoon that was like bivouacking in a patrol base just in the middle of Afghanistan that was our QRF. So we were eight hours away from anyone being able to come and help us. Now we, we had, had, we had like a 10 assets on station that we we got priorities that we could have requested, you know, and, and, and called back to Jalalabad and they would have kicked some a 10s up if necessary, but shit would have had to get real bad for that. Right. They just, you just can't call close air support like that with an a 10 on just random stuff. You're going to have to really be in it. Right. So you have to make that decision of like, Hey, let's gather that Intel. Let's watch where those explosives goes. Let's watch for each one of those individuals where they reside, like where they live. Right. And then, you know, make note of, those other guys that went out and then, you know, you call it in. And when I say it's successful, I, I think what I really wanted to happen is I wanted an opportunity to, to, to work towards, you know, getting those dudes back and, and putting one in them. Um, but in a position where like, if you knew that was going to happen, you could have called your QRF up, right. Cause said, Hey, QRF, we got this, this going down and we're going to probably, you know, go hot in four hours. And then they're there, you know what I'm saying? They're already in route everything's in motion and you'd be in a good position. But at the end of the day, these individuals that were teaching this class at the Creek bottom were not your target of interest. You were looking for somebody of a bigger. No, we were looking for just that gen, that general thing. No, no specific person, not like nothing like that. It was just uh okay. That general thing. And then they did come back the 11th day. This is like, you talk about stuff like people talk about stuff that they think about from being deployed, like bad stuff, good stuff, all that stuff. And, and like, this one bothers me the most is they came back. They watched them bring in some more explosives to the, to the one key house. I mean, you know, I assume they were bringing explosives when they took the house down, they found explosives. So I'm just going to make the assumption they were explosives. And we watched the two dudes, they're walking off and like, we have them at like 200 and some yards. And I'm like, you know, man, you've been climbing around the mountains for like, you know, well, you've been on a bunch of operations for multiple days. You've been in and out of vehicles. Your gun's getting banged around. You know, 100% confident we can hit those dudes at 250 meters. 
but I'm like, maybe we don't take the shot until they get to 400 meters, right? Because if we do miss them, they're running AKs. And for me, a difference of a 250 and a 400 yard shot's nothing, right? That's Those are the same shot. You know, there's there's it's the same thing. And they're running AKs. I'm like, if we happen to miss one, you know, that maybe they put some suppressive fire in our area and we, we take some relatively effective fire. Let's get, let them get to like 400 yards. And so we went to let them get to like 400 yards and there was this big rock along the trail. I mean, it was like a probably eight foot tall and they were walking. I'm like, Hey, when they get to that rock, that's exactly 400. I had my partner with me. He had an SR 25. Uh, I was running, a. I was running, I must've been running an SR 25 too. Cause I, w- it was right in between M 24s and Mark 13, 300 wind mag. So I, I was running SR 25 as well. <laughs> and so, and they got to that rock. I was like, Hey man, we're going to, we're going to shoot them. We're going to simo shoot them. You take the guy on the right. I'll take the guy on the left. They're busy walking away. This is going to be perfect. No one will know where the shot's coming from. And then we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll get the hell out of here. I'd already called up headquarters and was like, Hey, we're going to engage them. It was all, all working in the right direction. And like they walked behind a house and they had like 30 yards to go to get to that rock. And like literally like 15 young kids come running out and we're like treating them like heroes. I mean, they were like, circled up around them and like, you know, like almost like they were like wanting to high five them. They they really looked up to them. And so like, I always wonder like to this day, like, you know, how important were those people, right? You know, what like where, where what, what caused all those children and all the locals to like bow down to them? Plus they were bringing the explosives in. So, and it could have just been a power thing, but what ended up happening is realistically, once they got surrounded by about a dozen or 15 kids, we couldn't shoot them. You know, what, what are you going to, you know, you, what are you going to do? Risk hitting some of the kids when you, you know, when, when all you got is, you know, top of the shoulder blades to the head of two dudes walking amongst kids. It's just not a, wasn't a responsible thing to do. But after that, the next day they came in and took the houses down. So we did good work, but I, like, I still regret the fact that, you know, we maybe should have just shot them at 250 and just called it a day. You know, I tried to do the right thing and ended up having to do the real right thing. And I don't know. It's kind of a, it, it actually kind of haunts me of all the little stupid things. That one actually bothers me. What is taking the houses down mean? Oh, uh, they just brought in the infantry guys. You know, they brought in this couple squads and just like you would think the cops, right. They come in and knock on the door or just kick the door in and they just raid the house. And you know, they, they take the individuals either into custody and if they put up a fight, they, they do what the army does. Did they find, did they find those same two individuals? No, not the same two. Those guys, I mean, we were watching, they never came back. They went back to Pakistan. I mean, we were right on the border. I mean, we were, I'm talking like when they were at 400, 800 yards was the, like another three, 400 yards was the Pakistan border, you know? And, uh, but anyways, you know, the QRF come into to us on the 12th with the plan of taking the houses down. They took the houses down and, you know, we took into custody the guys that were, they just basically taught how to blow shit up and confiscated the explosives. So, I mean, like I said, it's successful. But personally, like there's just a little bit of a scar there that I wish wasn't the way it was. So you leave that 12 day sit and you go back to where do you go and how do you get back there after you're done on the 12 days? Just jump on the vehicles like the vehicles came in with empty seats. Right. And then, you know, when we just like we that's how we got in. Right. We rode the vehicles in. They pause for a second. We jump off and then we just run into the woods, basically, you know, and then uh, when they come back in, we just jump, they stop, they do the raids. We move out of the mountains and we link up with them and jump on the vehicles for the exfil. you know, super, super simple stuff. So you go back and now you get to regroup, you get the rest that you need in a bed for a couple of nights, or do you automatically get placed again? No, I think we had like 48 hours where we just kind of got to take a shower and refit. And then we were just back out doing, you know, smaller raids. I mean, a lot of the stuff we did were just hits, you know, which was just, you know, you got a target of interest, 
take down a house, you do an overwatch on the house and, you know, they're just an ebb and flow. But the majority of stuff that we did was, you know, so like from a sniper perspective was, you know, two man overwatch while they're doing hits. Or if we didn't have anything going on, we might do a, a, a two man overwatch while they do a vehicle checkpoint, you know, and they just basically stop every car, just like you'd think like the police would do in the city. And, you know, you just interpret, you get your interpreter and you interrogate them and ask them what the hell they're up to and just rinse repeat every day. That's really all you do. And how many missions would you say you did in your entire career as a sniper like that? On a four month long deployment, if you're really, if your op tempo is really high, you're probably doing 60 to 90 days. It depends on how 60 to 90 days that you're doing a mission, If depending on how high your op tempo is like at the real peak stuff where you're just hitting house after house, night after night. But you know, like you might hit a house, you might hit a house in the night and have to go to a follow on objective and hit two houses in one night. You might hit three houses in one night. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't know a lot, but not, not as many as others, you know, that's, that's probably somewhere in there. When you're on the mission and you have orders to ration batteries, or, you know, using common sense that you have to ration everything because you're going to be there for a minute. How do you gain the intel and how do you note it if you can't be on your radio the whole time telling headquarters this is what you're seeing? Is somebody actually taking notes in some manner or some form? No, because if anything comes up on your end, you can just turn your radio on. They're they're listening the whole time, right? And your phone's on the whole time. And I walk to my I walk back to the phone for the first 10 minutes of every hour and we communicate for the first 10 minutes. And then you don't get to talk to me until the top of the next hour. But if I have something come up, your phone's on the whole time. I can call you. You just can't reach me. I got my ass chewed the whole time on that mission for being on comp, being on limited comps. I, I had people chewing my ass out all the time, telling me that it wasn't going to happen. We we can't we can't sustain this. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to run out of batteries. You're going to have to come get me, you know. And and and, and the stupidity of of people in some regards is, I had one guy tell me like. Literally had a young officer tell me when I'm like, he's like, hey, this comm window thing's not happening anymore. And I'm like, well, it is. So you're going to have to get over it. And uh, he was literally like, well, we'll drive out there and drop batteries off to you, like in the middle of the fucking day. Think about the stupidity of that. And listen, I got I got my ass chewed pretty good when I got back because, you know, I said some choice things on the radio like, are you fucking <laughs> stupid, sir? You know, like shit like that. Yeah, you're so, going to get given up. You know, like, do you think that... You know, I basically, I think I said to him, like, did you really think this through, sir? You're really just going to drive out here in the middle of the day <laughs> and we're going to come down and grab sandwiches and some batteries and then you're going to leave and we're going to sneak back up and nobody's going to know we're here? You know, like, so I, I, I got, you know, ain't the only ass you have had in my whole life, you know? We're going to break here for a few commercials. This is the Sig Sauer Peace of Mind series. I appreciate y'all being here. I love it when a plan comes together. It's like Hannibal's on the jazz again. How would you have Rob Roberts customize your Super Black Eagle? I'm having him do my Super Black Eagle. I'm going to have the metal done in like a dark navy. And then I found a blue jean dip. I'm going to have it dipped in blue jeans. And I'm going to have them laser engraved with the Canadian tuxedo. That's going to be freaking slick. Dude, it's going to be badass, dude. Today's episode of Benelli's The Foul Life and the Six Sour Peace of Mind series is brought to you in part by Rob Roberts Custom Gunworks at robrobertsgunworks.com. Chad Building and Six Sour's Jason St. John We'll return after this word from our partners. Watch your six. It's called Benelli's The Foul Life for a reason. We love Benelli. They are the top shelf 
of waterfowl shotguns, all shotguns for that matter, in my opinion. But when you start talking about duck blinds, goose blinds, lay down blinds, panel blinds, pit blinds, the debris, the wear and tear, everything that we put our guns through throughout a duck season, whether it's a 60 day duck season in the south or you start up north and north of the border in Canada, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and follow the migration south. Some of us, myself included, hunt over 120 days a year. And every single time I squeeze that Benelli trigger, it goes bam. I'm so proud and honored to be part of the Benelli family. And when it comes to the Super Black Eagle 3, the 12 gauge, the 20 gauge, the 28 gauge, I absolutely love this line of shotguns, the inertia, every single thing from the rib down to the sight, to the choke tube, to the constrictions, the performance is what it's all about with Benelli. The Super Black Eagle series in 12 gauge, 20 gauge, and 28 gauge. Whether you get Rob Roberts to build the performance shop or you keep them straight out of the box factory, they perform. They're simply perfect. It's Benelli. It's the confidence of shouldering that shotgun and the responsibility of pointing it at a live animal and squeezing that trigger. The dispatch, humane, ethics, everything that goes into it. Benelli believes in the culture of the duck hunter, the goose hunter, the turkey hunter, the upland hunter. So whether you're doing sporting clays, whether you're chasing waterfowl, chasing upland, chasing turkeys, Benelli builds a shotgun for you. Benelli's the foul life. They're 13 seasons as our title sponsor. Can you imagine this relationship. Thank you, Benelli. Thank you all for supporting Benelli. And I know it's all of our goal to walk into that sporting good, that Benelli dealer, that store and say, let me shoulder that super black Eagle. And now you can do it in so many gauges, the sub gauges included. We're fired up. Good luck this season. Stay safe out there and shoot straight. Shoot Benelli. Looking for a high-quality truck accessory that's built to last? Look no further than Lear. With over 50 years of experience in the industry, these guys know what it takes to make your ride look and performance best. Whether you're looking for a fiberglass or aluminum cap, a hard or soft cover, or accessories to customize your truck, Lear's got you covered. Their products are made with only the best materials, and their innovative features provide added convenience and security for truck owners. Head over to Lear.com to explore their range of products and take your driving experience to the next level. We run training. We run rigs, we run down the highways, and we depend on Featherlight of Reno, the Chipman family, to make sure that every single one of our Foul Life trailers, provider trailers, are ready to go. They build them out. It is unbelievable to know the strength, the durability, the precision that goes into every single one of the trailers that they sell. They do not cut corners, and we work exclusively with Featherlight of Reno. Dustin Chipman, his wife, Laura, thank you so much. You see the Foul Life trucks and trailers going down the highway. I want you to envision what's going on inside of that trailer with our secure gun lockers, our ammo boxes, our waiter hangers, all of our shelving, everything that keeps all of our arsenal organized. And trust me, we have a lot. UTVs being tied down, our Traegers tied down in there. Everything has its home. Everything goes back to where we found it. And that is the key to success, y'all. If you didn't know it, organization is the key to success. And Featherlight of Reno Trailers helps us be consistently successful and safe and keeps all of our gear safe and dry and protected and secured as we hit America's highway, byways, back roads, dirt roads, chasing the migration. We do it year round. Thank you to Featherlight of Reno for being the official trailer, enclosed trailers, flatbed trailers of the Foul Life podcast and Benelli's The Foul Life TV. 
Floridians beware of Sig packing cranes. How do you rank Freedom Days for a second? I joined you in Dallas, and then I know y'all went to Florida for one also. Was it a success? Well, the Florida one was awesome because they had a sandhill crane there that literally walked up and like hung out by my range all day while we're shooting machine guns. He was like, I don't care. He knew he was safe? Yeah, he said my belt-fed machine guns and not even getting phased. Welcome back to part two of Benelli's The Foul Life, where Chad Building and Jason St. John set the stage to deliver the epilogue for the six-hour Peace of Mind series. And I just hope that Americans and our fellow people in our communities and neighborhoods in this country understand that it really is happening. It's happening right now as we speak. Yeah, it's going to be fly as hell, dude. The six-hour Peace of Mind series is made possible by Vortex Optics, Realtree Camouflage, Bandit Brands, and Federal Premium Black Cloud. Let's return to the boys. So when you're in that part of your career, let's call it the prime. When were you in the prime of your career? Because you, we've talked on the episodes before, Jason, about your accolades as a gunsman, as a rifleman, as a marksman, and all of the different attributes of what that includes. And we can go through them again, but you were a very qualified shooter to say the least. Um, In your prime as a soldier and as a sniper, what were you, were you the lead on all of these missions? Were you the boss to where you could get on the radio and talk like that? Or were you guys all equal as the six soldiers on those little missions? Before we get on there, you asked, when was I my prime? Shit, I'm still in my prime, dude. I meant as a soldier, but you're not. <laughs> I know you're still in your prime. I just shot with you. <laughs> um, Man, you know, I was really fortunate because I came in the army in 95. And so by the time the global war kicked off, I've already got like, you know, five, well, at that point, six years of training under my belt. I've been to, at, at well, I'd been to every single, I went to the Marine Corps sniper uh, course. I went to the SEAL sniper course. I went to the SOCOM sniper course. And I went to the Army sniper course in that period of time. I was an operational sniper for four of those five or three and a half of those five years. Uh, before we went over uh, before we went overseas, I was already a jump master. So I was already like a, you know, a, a, a mid-level management guy. Right. So I'm already a senior E5 at that point, young E6. And so and then by that time, I, you know, I'd won a couple of international sniper competitions. I'd represented well here. You know, I had a little bit of leeway because I, I had a minor name for myself. Not that you can have much of a name in any army unit, but I had an, an, enough capital that I could burn a little here and there. Right. But as far as those missions are concerned, yeah, I don't, I can't remember a time in the early part of the war that, that I wasn't the team lead on it. Right. So, you know, and when I say I was fortunate, think about the other way. You, you could be a guy who came in six months before the war kicked off or be a person who came in when the war was already going on your first deployment, you've been in the army six months, you know, maybe been in your unit three, four months, maybe two months, you know, like I had plenty of experience, lots of training and, you know, was in a position that it didn't really I, w- I was going to be in charge where I was at, right? Is being a sniper, a lot of times when you talk to soldiers, you hear it's just a job. It's what we do. Was it just a job? Is it really just a job when you're in that type of scenario? Yeah. like I mean, yep. you know what I'm saying? I'm not talking like, I know that you could easily say, yes, that was my job. But really, truly, what is it? When you're over there, your blood has to be doing something different you have to stay calm you have to practice your breathing you have to be on your game all of the freaking time you can't let your guard down again to say the least like is it really just a job to be a sniper or to be a soldier in that type of scenario jason i would say 100 it's just a job and it's probably not the most important job on the battlefield and i'll get killed by all my sniper friends 
But you got to realize, man, like think about, you know, like my, my, my one friend, he cracks me up. He calls me a belly fighter. He's like, you fought the whole war on your belly, you know, like, and it makes me laugh. Right. I think it's, it's quite funny, but like, you know, I would say in some ways the easiest job, you know, like in comparison when, so, you know, when you're in Ranger Regiment as a sniper, you're an assault sniper. That's, that's a lot different than, you know, yeah, we did some recce missions, you know, I did multiple missions where you went out and overwatched things, uh, you know, and sat and, and, and gathered intel. And, and that's very traditional sniper stuff, you know, but like the majority, I mean, 90 nine percent of what you're doing is assault oriented sniper stuff and that means that i get the luxury of climbing a building next to a building and looking down into a courtyard while another 16 to 20 dudes you know blow doors run into courtyards and shoot people in the room like i get to watch for people that are you know going to affect that breach going to affect that assault or they're trying to flee from the objective that are still threats you know and and i'm mostly out of harm's way on the objective to be to, to be, you know, absolutely frank about it. I mean, now on the way to the objective, you know, you can snipers, they'll, they'll be up front doing routes and stuff. And that puts you in positions with IEDs in some areas. And, you know, I never really had to do much of that, you know, I, I you know, but I have colleagues that did, you know, some of that stuff that get a little hairy and, you know, you can do a lot of, you know, there's some things that you're at in danger for, for sure. But like on the assault, man, it's the assaulters that are the freaking key component, right? You got you got eight pissed off rangers coming in your front door with people with guns inside you want you know that that job takes a lot more balls than laying 150 yards away and that's and at night with night vision that people can't see you and you know shooting at people that you know want to affect that you know that that breach or like i said that that portion of the raid so it's definitely just a job did any part of your military mind throughout your career jason tell you or make you want to be one of those eight Rangers busting down the door, kicking down the door. They call them door kickers. Like, did you ever see yourself doing yeah. that? And did you ever feel like maybe I'm not engaged enough and I want to be doing that? Or were you always content and happy being the sniper because of your shooting skills? I think when I first came in the army, all I wanted to be was a door kicking Ranger, but I'd always enjoyed shooting and I never really shot any long range stuff. I mean, I plinked with 22s and I shot, you know, we shot all the time at the gravel pit growing up. And so um, but I wanted to go to sniper school. Well, back up when I, when I, all I ever wanted to be was, a, was the assaulter when I came into regiment and I showed up and when they selected, you know, it was basically like 10 of you showed up at the company and the platoons come out like a draft day. And they're like, I'll take him. I'll take him. I'll take him. I'll take him. And who, wh who took you is what job you got when you got there. So if the weapon squad needed a machine an, an, an ammo bearer or an assistant gunner, They'd walk up and be like, hey, Belding, you're a machine gunner now. And you'd be like, roger that. And so when I first went there, that's all I wanted to be was an infantry guy, right? And I got picked to be a Carl Gustav gunner, which is an 84 millimeter recoilless rifle. You know, think of it like a bazooka. So I was on a fucking bazooka team, which I fucking hated. And so, you know, I got to go to sniper school because I won a, a shooting competition in battalion. My platoon sergeant's like, if you win it, you go to sniper school. And so I went to sniper school and then they, they stood up the company snipers, which we didn't have. And I was able to get into that area. So, you know, from the time I was a PFC, you know, I, I was able to be a sniper and, and then I never really looked back, you know, and I fucking loved it. And I mean, and Chad, I was good at what I was doing. Right. So when you're good at something, man, you want to keep being you want to get better and better and be the best. You were more than good. You were more than good. I don't, you never talk about it and I don't say anything either, but you were more than good 
at what you did. We know this. We, um, yeah, hundred percent. Before I get back to Shot Show to bring this conversation full circle, is Tom going to Shot Show? Uh, I don't know. I can find out for you. I know Jason's not. The other Jason. The other Jason. He's not. No. Our buddy Jason. I love Jason. Yeah, he's great, dude. I love him. He's such a nice guy, right? <laughs> he's such a good dude. And, and we'll talk shit about him when we're not on the podcast. But right oh, yeah. now, right now, he's the best guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, la- last sniper question. Um, you say you're in your prime, and I do. I I do agree with that. I, I get that, but no. Because I still am, and I'm older than you. I'm the same exact age as you. Are we both 49? No, I'm 51. Okay, you're two years older than me. So Same age. Same, same age. age. Um, how much did you and were you celebrated for your military career? And did it matter? Because you just said it was just a job. Do you get – usually jobs have a nice little going away, retirement party, stuff like that. I get all that. But – how much was your military career celebrated personally and professionally by your comrades? Hey, man, my mom and my daddy were proud of me. I mean, like, and, you know, I grew up kind of a fucking hooligan, you know, so like, and I, don't get me wrong. My mom and dad were always proud of me, but there's a different aspect of how proud my mom was and, you know, bragging about me and, you know, like it, that, that, that's all that matters realistically, right? Like, you know, as far as my colleagues and stuff, man, I, I mean, I think we all look up to each other. I don't, you know what I mean? I, I look up to everyone that served, you know, and, and the guys that, that I served with and the guys I served around, it's, it's, it's awesome. I look up to them. They, I, I hope they look up to me. I, I think we do. I feel like I honestly, I feel like my hometown, my hometown, like it was awesome going back hometown. Like, man, my hometown would just be like, they were always so good to me. Right. I mean, they were, I mean, I'd be at the County fair and people would come up and say, thanks. And man, I know who you are. And, you know, people that I never even met, like little, like probably would have been like, you know, like eight, 10 years old and like, you know, associate with people I knew and would come up and be like, Hey, are you St. John? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, man, it's really a pleasure to meet you. Like, that's weird, you know, but on the same standpoint, feels really, it feels nice. Right. It feels like, you know, my dad was in Vietnam, man, and he'd never talk about it. Right. He'd never talk about it. And he, he was like, I don't think he was ashamed of it by any means. I just think that my dad would like, just was uncomfortable to talk about and like country and the people around me and the people that love me and the people that have been on, you know, left and right of me. And then people I don't even know. I mean, they've made me feel super proud of my service. You know, they, they've made me feel welcome everywhere I go. And so, yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot to worth celebrating there, right? Not everybody gets that. I think so. And I don't think that it should stop being celebrated. And I know that you have the attitude and personality of like, look, I don't need that, but you know, there's been movies made and books written and there's a lot of different views on if that stuff should happen in a military man or woman's career. I'm not going to sit here and judge. I do have a little bit of an issue with credit being given or taken without knowing the full story by certain individuals. I don't get that part of the mindset or the psyche, but I'm also not a soldier. So I don't know what it feels like to come back after being in theater and really like, what am I going to do now when it's all over? Am I going to like, like, look how successful you are. When I watched you speak in Dallas, I was blown away the, the way that you grasp an audience and how intriguing and captivating it is. You've made a career out of your career in the army. In my opinion, I don't know where you would have ended up working in your life if you did never became a gunman or a sniper, but 
you know, there's different yeah. views on that. Like people come back and they take the credit, they get the money, they make the money. Are they deserving of that? I don't know because you take an oath. You, you're a brotherhood, a sisterhood when you're in there. So that's another conversation that I do want to have with you. Um, but as far as like the celebration part of it, the last question, Jason St. John, and thank you for being back on another episode of the Foul Life Podcast, the one and only Jason St. John right here on the Sig Sour Peace of Mind series. Um, how hard was it for you to accept that it was over? Man, listen, 22 years. I was so fortunate, man. I never pulled an injury. I never had like a career on an injury. Of course, you know, I've had some surgeries and stuff like that, but I never pulled a career in injury. I got some aches and pains, but you know what? So does the, so did my dad who worked in a factory at 50 years old, right? He had aches and pains too, right? So I'm not going to piss and moan about that, but like it was so awesome. I mean, I worked up until they told, I mean, usually, you know, you, you take, the last six or eight months to get out of the army. Some people are allowed a year and I was working and, you know, at that end of my career, I was training uh, young Rangers and young Ranger leaders, how to shoot and how to train their guys. And so I worked right up to like three and a half months. And then I got, I mean, I basically, the commander was like, Hey bro, you're not even going to be able to get out on time. And from that moment there, I was like, I did everything I could do to the last minute. I settled on my mind. I was getting out. I timed my retirement. You'll love this. I timed my retirement with duck season. <laughs> no, I saved up my, I saved up my vacation so that when, you know, I got out, I would have 60 days of paid leave. And I actually, uh, November one was my retirement date. I got out. Uh, I, my last day of work was August 15th because I was able to have two 75 days saved up because at September 1st, you use or lose all but 60. So August 15th, I took two weeks and then I took my 60 days August 28th, I flew up to Canada and I, I worked for an outfitter in Saskatchewan for six weeks. And I chased ducks through all of the rest of October, November. I put something like 26,000 miles on my truck and I, I shot ducks all the way to SHOT Show. I went to SHOT Show. I had one interview and got a job. You went to SHOT Show with so, with the, the goal of getting a job. Yep. I went to the SHOT Show and I was like, I'm going to walk around. I'm going to talk to some folks. And a buddy of mine said, hey, so-and-so is looking, they're looking for someone. And they said, they'd like to talk to you. And I, when I came home from SHOT Show, I had a job with Remington. Wow. And so like, it was such an easy way. And then, you know, I got to give my wife a ton of credit, right? Like I was gone all the time, you know, throughout our relationship. And then when I get out of the army, I'm like, hey, you know, I'd like to just decompress. What do you think about me just duck hunting? And she's like, yeah, well, like how long? I'm like, all of it, <laughs> you know, all of it fucking September 1st to January 31st. And uh, she's like, I'm all in, dude, do what you want to do. And, you know, I got to give her credit, man, for like, letting me decompress, put all that behind me. You know, not everyone gets that opportunity to have that closure. I get it. But like, when you've done everything you wanted to do, or more importantly, not that when you've done enough, and you can realize as a, as an older, more mature person, which I'm not quite there yet, that doesn't matter what you, you know, like I, I tell you that there, I have that scar that I wish I we would have fucking laid those two dudes in the dirt, right? When I tell you that I have that scar. It bothered me for a little while, like after those deployments, you know, three, four, five years, just like, because I was like, what the fuck those guys go on to do the next day and the next day and the next day, right? That bothered me. But like, can't change it, man. When I got older, I'm like, everything I've done, I've done to this point. It's made me who I am. I love it. You know, like what I don't like about me, it's too late, you know, freaking embrace it. And uh, yeah, man, I closed that chapter, Chad. It was great. And I, and now listen, 
I work in the freaking defense firearm space. My boss is a, you know, was in the Navy. I, I actually work with the guy that I was in the sniper platoon with. And I actually work with the guy who ran the sniper platoon. I'm with the same guys I mean, day to day. We're still trying to piss excellence every single day. We're, we're in a no fail mission. We're, we're, we, you know, we, we don't accept defeat, you know, like I, I'm, I'm working in an organization that's top tier. It's almost an easy transition to have an extension of what I thought I did in the military and, and, and working at SIG, right. You know, top tier organization doesn't accept defeat, always wants to win, always growing, super professional, a lot of pride working here. I mean, why would I have a hard time when you really stop and think about it, right? I understand. I love the attitude and I love that you got to decompress that way. And I just hope that everybody understands that what you did isn't just a job and it's not normal to you. It was. And it's cool to hear you pay homage to the door kickers and the people that were engaged more so than you say you were. And I understand that. But I still think that that people need to take the time. They don't need to. But if you ever want to, you need Try it. Take the time to learn more about what actually goes on over there because it it's captivating to me. You know, I could sit here all day and talk ballistics and ammo and rounds and, and optics and guns and and spin rate and all the things that you know of. You're a master of that. You're a genius. And people are going to hear that. And they're going and I and I will have those conversations with you. But the military career is one that's so intriguing to me because it's up to you to do it. You weren't drafted. You went in as a volunteer and you could have been killed and you watched your friends be killed and you and you and that sucks. And that's not normal to me. That's not a normal. Just it's just a job kind of deal. And I just hope that Americans and, and our fellow people in our communities and neighborhoods and in and, and this country understand that it really is happening. It's it's happening right now as we speak. There's there's men and women on missions right now as we speak, putting themselves in harm's way. And it is just a job. I get that. But I hope people understand that, man. You, it's tough to swallow that that really happens. And a lot of us don't put ourselves in that predicament. And you guys never look down at us for not doing it. And that's a really cool point of view that I always ask soldiers, like, do you look down on people like me that never went in? And they're like, absolutely not. What I would say to you, just to understand the mindset of the people that I'm around is what I've always said about the people that I'm around is that they die one of two ways, either old as shit with a ton of grandchildren or in a position where their name got carved into granite. They're both good. Both of those are acceptable. Very acceptable. I appreciate everything you said. That's very kind of you. Yeah, and I mean it. You I, know. Now, oh, oh, no, what I was going to tell you, I was going to tell you, you know, you say, hey, I came in the army and did all that stuff. Like, man, every kid that joined the army or the military after 9-11, so every kid that joined from 9-12 for the last 20 years joined knowing they could go to war. Man, I joined dreaming of going to war. There's a big difference. Give those kids credit, man. Like, I know I reenlisted a bunch of times. Like, stay, keep going. But like, man, a young kid fresh out of high school would want to do it for his country on November or on, on September 12th. Man, that's bigger balls than joining in 1995. I'll tell you that. It's pretty big. And there's there was several people that you hear about doing that after 9-11. And man, I look forward to the next conversation. Oh, yeah. I look forward to uh, not next week, but the week after. I'll be seeing you in Sin City, Las Vegas for SHOT Show. Yeah, 100%. Looking forward to it, bro. I'm ready too. That's Jason St. John, Six Hour Peace of Mind podcast right here at The Foul Life. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll have Jason back on, of course. He was just on another episode that we just aired on The Foul Life. He came at us from Prairie Wings, Arkansas, talking about our flooded timber hunt down there. We'll talk about that more in the future because it won't be our last. We're fired up. America, 
the great. That's what it is. And uh, thank you to Sig Sauer for believing in what we do. I can look forward to conversations. Jace, when we get to Las Vegas for SHOT Show 2024, any closing words? No, but I appreciate your time. And anybody that's listening to this, like, can't believe you have any concern about what I have to say, but thanks for listening, man. Heck no. I love everything about it. Appreciate you, Jason St. John. Thank you, everybody, for listening, the downloads, the subscriptions. Thank you to all of our partners and especially Sig Sauer for this episode of Peace of Mind. I'm Chad Belling for Jason St. John. We'll see you on another episode. Thank you all very much. Ten Hut. Listen up, good nerds. It's captivating to me. You know, I could sit here all day and talk ballistics and ammo and rounds and optics and guns and spin rate and all the things that you know of. You're a master of that. You're a genius. And people are going to hear that. I don't know why it sounds so sick for like a redneck like me. It sounds so cool, dude. Can't get enough of Benelli's The Foul Life and the Six Hour Peace of Mind series? Stream every firearms tech tip broadcast of the Six Hour Peace of Mind series by checking us out on SoundCloud, iHeart, Spotify, and the foul life.com you know i've never really tried it to be frank about it chad building and jason st john from sig sour will stick around to close the show right after the break don't go anywhere we cook a lot and we like our wild game to be legit our recipes mean a lot to us out of the box unorthodox thinking that provider mentality we eat what we harvest we eat what we catch i love the organic lifestyle and nutrition and diet we eat wild game seven days a week in one meal, sometimes two and three meals. My daughter, Alyssa, loves eating wild game. My nephew, Chase, all of our family has grown up and still lives on the value of sustainability. And Napa Valley olive oil is there for us. The Particelli family are hunters. They're fishermen, they're outdoorsmen, they're gatherers, they're providers. They are old Italian heritage that loves the outdoors. And this product, Napa Valley Olive Oil, located in the wine country of Napa, it's an amazing place. The store is amazing. The salamis, the cheeses, the fresh Italian meats, the sodas, the pastas, all of the different anchovies, everything that you need to do to be a complete outdoor chef. And even if you're cooking domestically, Napa Valley Olive Oil is bottled old school style. The brand is amazing. The flavor is amazing. The culture of Napa Valley Olive Oil, the friendship we have with Ray Ray and Dante and Jules and Stefano and the entire family, the entire Particelli clan means the world to us. Get online, NapaValleyOliveOil.com and order the different flavored oils, the garlic, the lemon, you name it. They have it. It's Napa Valley Olive Oil. We're proud to have them in all of our recipes at The Foul Life, The Foul Life TV on the Outdoor Channel and The Provider Life. Look for more recipes at TheProviderLife.com. Get yourself a provider cookbook. Napa Valley Olive Oil is all over it. Thank you to the Particelli family and thank you all for supporting the brands that support us. Safari Club International, first for hunters. That's not just a slogan. They're on Capitol Hill, lobbyists, lawyers, attorneys, fighting for hunters' rights across this world. I talk to the president and CEO, Laird Hamberlin, all the time, and it blows my mind to understand his traveling schedule as he represents Safari Club International in so many different facets. Meetings, organizations, banquets, you name it. Every single thing that this man is doing with his crew and team, Ben Cassidy, Chris LaCovicia, it is amazing to see the work being done behind the scenes by Safari Club International. And if you don't think that hunting rights need to be fought for, then you haven't watched the news, you haven't been well read, you haven't been paying attention, get your head 
out of the sand and pay attention what's going on in our country, let alone the world right now. And Safari Club International is fighting for our rights every single day. So become a member, join them, attend a banquet, attend the National Convention. Late January 2024, Nashville, Tennessee, Music City, USA. The Safari Club International Convention will be back. It was bigger than better last year, and it's going to be bigger and better again this year. I'm telling you, we cannot take our hunting rights for granted. We need Safari Club International fighting for our rights behind the scenes every single day. So when you're watching that sunrise or your dog swim back with a mouthful of mallard feathers, watching those big honkers descend or that whitetail get underneath your tree stand, squirrel hunters, I don't care what you hunt, I don't care what species, and I don't care where. I don't care what tactic. Safari Club International is fighting for our rights. Get involved. Become a life member if you can. A yearly member for sure. And again, we are proud members, life members of Safari Club International. We truly believe in their message and their fight. And we are going to fight right alongside with them. Thank you, SCI First for Hunters. The Answer 12. It's our new Foul Life Edition safe gun storage system from our friends at Secure It. Brand new design, so much room, so much organization, so much potential, so many options. You can see videos on our YouTube, on episodes of Benelli's The Foul Life, airing exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. We do everything with our Secure It Answer 12 Foul Life Edition safe. Check them out at secureit.com right now and design your own. Get the cubbies, get the shelves, get the bungees, get the magnetic hanging hooks. You got plenty of room for 12 long guns in there and the organization that you can do with everything from knives to binos to dog training equipment to sporting clay equipment to eyewear ear protection all of your chokes all of your sights everything that you want you can organize it for different times of the year it might be dog training season it might be sporting clay season it might be duck season it might be turkey season organize it it is a safe built for the shot gunner my friends tom chris everybody in new york at secure it helped me design this safe our crew went to work on it and we have come up with a configuration that will allow you to make it your own comes with the magnet set with the foul life with labs and ducks and flocks, working geese, working ducks. The Foul Life Edition Secure It Answer 12 Safe is available right now at secureit.com. Check us out this coming February at the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. We will have more of them on site, on display, like we did last year in our booth. It's going to be magnificent. I hope you get a chance to get your hands on your own, organize it the way that you see fit. And when you open those doors and see what you've created, it's going to give you even more energy, even more aura, even more enthusiasm for this unbelievable lifestyle that we get to live as an American shotgunner, American duck hunter, turkey hunter, upland hunter, dog trainer. Let's do it. Get the Answer 12 Foul Life Edition right now at secureit.com. You can't go wrong with it. Thank you so much, Secure It, and thank you all so much for supporting the brands that support us here at the Foul Life Podcast and the Foul Life TV. Benelli's The Foul Life with Chad Belding and the six-hour Peace of Mind series featuring Jason St. John has concluded, but new episodes will be dropping soon. America the Great, that's what it is, and uh, thank you Six Hour for believing in what we do. I look forward to conversations. Jace, when we get to Las Vegas for SHOT Show 2024, any closing words? No, but I appreciate your time. Hit us up on thefoullife.com, plus SoundCloud, iHeart, and Spotify. And for all things firearm-related, go straight to the source, SigSour.com. Thanks for listening and stay locked and loaded, ready to dominate the range.